0: Today, we're learning a very important lesson when it comes to prayer. To begin our time together here on Graceful Truth, from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, our teacher and pastor. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. In
1: our prayers, we should not only seek answers to our problem, but we should seek God himself.
0: Testament examples of prayer. It's a marvelous illustration of what our prayer lives should look like and what really matters when it comes to prayer. Hello and welcome to Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. We're back in Second Chronicles chapter 20 today, beginning in verse 3 as we're looking at Jehoshaphat's prayer. It's an amazing prayer with some amazing truths wrapped up in it that you and I would do well to take a look at and mimic. Join us for today's broadcast of Graceful Truth Now, our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse.
1: Verse 3, it says, Jehoshaphat, what he do? He turned his attention. In other words, what that means literally is he set his face. He determined that this was going to happen to seek the Lord. Sometimes when we're faced with a trial, all we see is a trial. We can't see anything else. So we think about the trial 24-7. We can't sleep at night because, well, the trial's so big. And we forget to say, you know what? When we're faced with these kind of things, when we're caught between a rock and a hard place, we don't just need to go to God and say, hey, uh, you know, can you help me out here? No, we need to go to God and seek Him. Seek Him. Verse 4 states that the people not only sought help from the Lord, but also it says they sought the Lord. I mean, this was nothing new for Jehoshaphat. In in chapter 17, a couple pages to the left, verse 4, he's described as the king who sought the God of his father. So seeking God out was something that he did on a regular basis. That Hebrew word for seek means literally to trample under foot maybe you have this around your home if you have a path maybe it's to the barbecue across the grass or or maybe it's to take the garbage out or whatever where you continually walk on your yard in a certain way in a certain place every day what happens you beat a path down the grass is kind of beaten down and you can see well this is the way they walk around the house that's the idea to beat a path to god because you frequent that way so often that's what that word seek means And in the first four verses of his prayer, in verses 6 to 9, what does he do? He focuses on God himself. Doesn't even talk about the problem. Doesn't even talk about all the enemies. Doesn't talk about that. He focuses on the goodness of God. And then the last three verses, in verses 10 to 12, he gets around to mentioning the problem. But even when he mentions the problem, he realizes that God has to be prominent in this prayer. I was asking myself this week if I was faced with immediate annihilation, could I honestly say that I would be so God-centered? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a a tight place, when I'm in a situation that, you know, man, I I need some help, usually my prayer is, God, get me out of here! Help me out! Come on! I want relief from my God now. I want it now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to sit and ponder how great my God is. No, I get me out of this place, this situation. Take care of it, God, whatever it is. But unfortunately, sometimes when we pray that way, we miss something that's so crucial. See, in a crisis, we're not supposed to, brothers and sisters, run to get God off the shelf like he's some little genie and rub him. And, okay, God, here we go. Here's your big chance. Help me out. Get what we want, and then we put him back on the shelf. That's not the way it's supposed to work Till the next crisis comes. See, trials should cause us to seek not only relief from our situation, but to, first of all, seek God himself. Because that's what we need. We need Him. I mean, do you believe this morning that God is sufficient for our life? That God sufficiently provides for His children? See, this is part of the issue. Even within the modern day church, there's a, there's a, a problem. People don't understand the sufficiency of Christ. So you have all this psycho babble stuff working its way into the church. When really God Himself, His indwelling Spirit and His Word, including our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Christ body, the church, are sufficient for a believer in, the, in any crisis. But there's people who think that somehow when it gets bad, well, that's when you need, you need, you need to get therapy. You need to go to the world and, and use the techniques of the world and, and, and try to allow them to use their expertise. Because, I mean, God is, yeah, He's there, but you know He can't handle this. I was flabbergasted to find out that even a lot of Christian psychologists say this, God and His Word are not sufficient. They're not sufficient. That's why we have this profession of psychology because we're the, the, the psychotherapists. We're here to help you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence." by which He has granted to us His precious and great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He provides all things for us that pertain to life and godliness. John MacArthur, in his book, The Sufficiency of Christ, writes this, Pure Christianity needs no embellishment whatsoever. We find complete sufficiency in Christ and His provision for our needs. But too many Christians, he goes on, have bought into the notion that all the spiritual resources we gain at the moment of salvation are not adequate to meet the real needs in today's complex world. So they look for something more, an emotionally exciting and self-edifying experience not found in God's Word. This failure to understand the sufficiency of Christ has opened the doors to all kinds of worldly influences, causing many modern believers to mix biblical truths with seemingly helpful man-made methods such as mysticism and psychology. As a result, they wallow in a watered-down pseudo-Christianity that has been drained of its vitality, effectiveness, and security. End quote. See, if we have God and we cling to God, then even if we aren't delivered from the crisis that we've gone to God with, you know what? We can go through it, even though the the loss of children, the loss of possessions, the loss of health. Talk to Job. He went through it because, as we said of Abraham last week, the living God is our friend. We can walk through anything. But if we turn to the world for help, who gets the glory? The world. If we turn to God as our only refuge and strength, He gets the glory. Our trials should force us to lay hold of God in brand new ways that we would not have done if we had not been driven to cast ourselves completely before Him in prayer. We should come away not just having presented our request to God, but also knowing God better as our refuge and strength, Psalm 46.1 says, in times of trouble. Well, in our prayers, we should also we should seek God as revealed in His Word. This is so important. Seek God as revealed in His Word. You know, Jehoshaphat's prayer here in Second Chronicles 20, it's just filled with Scripture. I mean, it is Scripture, but it's also filled with Scripture. He starts in verse 6. He recites God's attributes. You are the God of our fathers, implying, you know what, you took care of them. Surely you can take care of us. You are the God in heavens, the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations, even those who are threatening to wipe us out, God, just to remind you. You are so powerful and mighty, he says, that no one can stand against you. Why is Jehoshaphat telling God all this? Do you think that somehow God forgot? I don't think so. God doesn't need that kind of information. It was really a rehearsal in his own mind and in the people's minds about the greatness of the God that they served and the reason why they could trust Him and Him alone. He not only cites God's attributes, he cites God's actions in verse 7. He says, "...you drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel, and you gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever." Abraham is called God's friend here in Isaiah 418 and James 2:23. He reminds God of his covenant to hear the prayers of his people when they cry to him in their distress. That's right out of a dedication to Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles chapter 6 verses 28 to 30. Then Jehoshaphat mentions the problem and he reminds God, it stems from the very fact that Israel had obeyed him by not wiping out these people, and now they're invading his territory. They're about to drive Israel out. Look at what it says. Not of their possession, but of whose? God's possession. So he calls attention finally to God's ability to deal with this problem in contrast to Israel's inability. See, that's the first step in prayer is realizing that we can't work this out ourselves. And that's a great prayer because it's just saturated. It's steeped in Scripture. It focuses on God as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. I mean, if we just fill our prayers with the greatness of our problems, what do we got? Nothing. Does that help your faith grow? I don't think so. But if we fill our prayers with the greatness of our God and how he's worked throughout the centuries and also just in, in the brief time we've been on here on earth. That's why it's neat to keep a journal. You see how God's worked in the past, how he's answered certain prayers. You go back in times of need and you say, you know what? He provided here. He'll provide here. I just know it. That'll help you. It, it, it grows your faith. God delights to answer believing prayers where we put our finger on the promises of God and we point to the truth in His Word. And we ask Him, you know what? Make it so in our case. Some of you may have been praying for loved ones for years. Hold on to the truth that, you know what? God desires none should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. So you pray for that unbelieving relative like you've never prayed before, believing God that He will touch that heart and save that soul. Our great need should drive us to prayer. Knowing our great God should direct our prayers. And the last point here this morning is faith in our great God should follow our prayers. Verses 14 to 30. As people here gathered at the temple in prayer, the Spirit of God came upon a prophet, it says in verse 14 there. And this prophet stood up and he encouraged them not to fear. And he assured them that God is going to undertake for them this battle, and they don't even have to lift a finger. Now, if you know anything about God and, and the Old Testament and battles, that wasn't always the case. Okay, You can read about a lot of battles. My grandson loves the Old Testament. I think for that reason, everybody's always fighting killing off people and all that kind of stuff. He's just into that stuff. Likes to see how God works through certain people and, and, and just is, is really into the Old Testament. When they heard this word through the prophet... It says there in verses 18, 19 that everyone fell down and they worshiped and then they stood up and they sang loud praises to God. Now, remember, who's the king here? Jehoshaphat. Who called the prayer meeting? Jehoshaphat. What do you see here? I see humility in the heart of this king. Think about it. These are his people. He's the king of these people. He called the prayer meeting. Everybody's together. And all of a sudden, Some Weisheimer stands up and, you know, starts spouting off. Oh, I'm going to tell you what. Wait a minute. I'm the king. He he didn't do that. See, he understood. No, you know what? God is speaking through this prophet of God. And he was willing to listen. See, if he had been prideful, filled with pride, he would have said, wait a minute. Sit down there, pal. This is my meeting, not yours. Go home. (laughs) I'm the king. Just to remember, just to remind you, I'm the one in control here. He didn't do that. He was humbled. And he was willing to submit to God's word through this other man. See, that speaks a lot about ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we're unwilling to to bend. We think that we got everything under control. And you know what? Just butt out. Don't be telling me how to run my show. That took some faith. But look at what he did based on the prophet's word of God. He submitted himself to it. He gets the people up the next morning. They march out to the battlefield. And who's leading them? Now, remember, they have three armies coming against them. I mean, this is like the point of annihilation, right? Who's leading them? Oh, the choir. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. You know, I wonder if they're wearing choir robes and all that. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. I mean, if I was going to war, I don't think I'd put the choir on the front lines. Unless they sang really, really bad. Then maybe you just, you know, need them to get wiped out. I don't know. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't think so. They're singing these praises. That took some faith to go into battle with your front line consisting of a choir. And all of a sudden, God causes these enemy armies to begin to turn on one another so that Israel, all they had to do was collect the spoil and celebrate the victory. I mean, this is a story that you couldn't really make up. I mean, this is just an incredible work of God's sovereign power working. Just incredible. Two things here in closing. Faith in God means being obedient to his word. Don't ever forget that faith in God means being obedient to his word. See, this promise given through the prophet in in verses 15 to 17 was one thing. The prophet could have stood up, said that and sat back down. They said, "Okay, let's get on with the prayer meeting. Guy's kind of crazy. He wants us to take the choir and go out and sing. You know, they could have done that. Believing and acting on what the prophet said was another I mean, think about these singers. They were staking their very lives on the truthfulness of what this man of God, this prophet said, marching unarmed in the front of an army singing praises to God against a powerful enemy that was no doubt armed significantly. And Jehoshaphat encouraged the people in verse 20. He says, put your trust in the Lord your God and you will, uh, you will be established. Put your trust in in his prophets and his word, and you will succeed. See, the evidence of their trust is seen in the fact that they kept marching. I mean, you have armies coming against them, and they're just out there singing, marching away. No weapons ready, nothing. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of our salvation. It really is. In salvation, you know what? We can't do anything We can't do anything. God does it all. Verse 17 says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. That's what salvation is. I mean, even faith, we're told, is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So that we cannot boast. 2 Timothy chapter 2 even speaks of repentance as something that God grants us. He says in verse 22 of 2 Timothy 2, So flee youthful youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolishness, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then he says this, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then look at what it says in verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after which being captured by him to do his will. The only way we're saved is by faith. The only way that, that we can activate that faith is through repentance, which is a change of direction, a change of mind. The only way that can happen is if God graciously grants that to us. Sometimes we we tell people, well, you need to repent. when maybe we should be praying that God would grant them repentance. Thinking that somehow that's their part. We don't have a part in salvation. God saves us to the uttermost by His grace through faith. With that being said, our faith that lays hold of God's salvation is not just some intellectual ascent. It's not just believing God is. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe. But you don't act on it. Saving faith is always obedient faith whenever it's talked about in Scripture. Just as those singers went before the nation and demonstrated their faith by marching out into battle armed with only the songs of praise, so genuine faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior will be demonstrated in a life of joyful obedience to His Word. Faith that says, I believe, but does not result in obedience. I'm sorry, it's not saving faith. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Tell us, John, how? If we what? Keep His commandments. Whosoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a what? Liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him. Truly, the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's why we're called Christians, right? Little Christ. We we follow the savior. We walk the way he walked. When you see someone naming the name of Christ and their life is in shambles and dishonoring to God, that's cause for pause. That's where Scripture says, you know what, you might want to be sure you're in the faith. Make sure that you're one of those overcomers. Make sure that you're persevering in the faith. It's not good enough to raise your hand in a service or walk down an aisle or say some silly sinner's prayer that we don't even find in Scripture. And then affirm those people say, well, now you're a Christian. Let's see what happens in their life. Let's see some obedience. Let's see some action to their words of faith. Because God always rewards those who put their faith in Him. It never fails. Those who trust and obey His word, He always rewards them. Now, I'm not saying that He gets you out of the fix that you're in. I'm not saying that He takes all the problems away. I mean, think of some of the martyrs. They went to their their graves trusting God, living obediently, and they got their heads severed from their bodies. There are many who have trusted God and, and lost their lives. But you know what? This earthly life is not the final chapter, beloved. All who suffer loss for Jesus will be richly, the Scripture says, rewarded in heaven, or God is a liar. And so we always want to be spiritually enriched through our trials. And if we recognize our great need, we need to pray to our great God and we need to trust in him and in him alone, not in the arm of flesh. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary in inland China. And he went through just horrendous trials and difficult circumstances. He lost his wife and at least one child in death. His own life was often in danger. He used to say this, it doesn't really matter how great the pressure is, it only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. Isn't that incredible? Corey Ten the author of The Hiding Place, survived all the horrible... German concentration camps, people used to walk up to her and say, wow, you have such an incredible faith. What a great faith you have. And she'd say, no, it's not my faith. It's what a great God I have. See, we should be willing to join Jehoshaphat and reject all these self-confident, self-esteem garbage that's coming in into the church and say, you know what, God, we're powerless and we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We're seeking you with our whole heart. Our great need should drive us to prayer and faith in our great God. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of this great truth. Lord, I know that personally speaking, my own prayer life isn't what it should be. But Lord, you've definitely spoken to my heart. And Lord, we need to be more reliant on you and less reliant on ourselves father let's start believing god to touch those uh, lost family members let's start believing god as a church to touch this community that you would begin to grant repentance even to our neighbors lord that they would show a divine interest in our fellowship here on sundays lord we pray even for the the radio ministry each week as it goes out over the airways across the bay area we don't know who's listening to that but lord you do and Lord, you're perfectly able to take that word of truth that's spoken through your, your word and Lord, to, to magnify it in the ears of those who will come to you. Father, we, we know that all these things have to come under your sovereign rule. But Lord, you tell us to, to pray, to come and to intervene and to ask you to work in ways that only you can. And so, Father, I pray that you would broaden our impact upon this community, that many would come to know the Savior. Lord, we pray for the evangelism team that goes out even this afternoon. Lord, that you would grant them wisdom and insight and a passion for the lost and be used of God to communicate the glorious gospel of Christ with those who he may bring across your path. Father, we pray for them. We, we ask that you would just grant them your favor, and Lord, that we would see fruit as a result of that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for a full service today. And Lord, we thank you for all that we've seen and heard. Pray for anyone here this morning who may have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Lord, we know that salvation is a work of you. But Father, we, we still are called to believe in the gospel in your son and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And so Father, we pray that you would grant them that belief. That you would help them even in their unbelief. Thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.
0: Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. GracefulTruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today, and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.